We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the beat generation of poets. My guest is Charles Upton. His first two books of poetry, Panic Grass in 1968 and Time Raid in 1969 were published by City Lights in San Francisco, known for publishing the works of the great beat poets. And he was regarded at the time he was still in his teens as perhaps the youngest member of the beat generation. He subsequently left that world and became engaged in metaphysics and the traditionalist movement. And he is the author of many books that have been discussed previously on this channel. They include Cracks in the Great Wall, UFOs, and Traditional Metaphysics, The Science of the Greater Jihad, Essays in Principial Psychology. The System of the Antichrist, Truth and Falsehood in Postmodernism and the New Age, Vectors of the Counter-Initiation, The Course and Destiny of Inverted Spirituality, The Way Forward for Perennialism After the Antinomianism of Fritjof Schoen, The Alien Disclosure Deception, the Metaphysics of Social Engineering, and Dugan Against Dugan, a traditionalist critique of the fourth political theory. Charles is located in Lexington, Kentucky, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Charles. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's been, I think, a few months since we've been together. I can't talk continuously for a year. You have to Take a vacation. And, and I know I didn't mention it in the uh, introduction, but I know you've been busy writing an autobiography. I hope that uh, our viewers will look for it because our topic today, The Beat Generation, is based on a lot of material from that uh, autobiography. Yeah, the autobiography is, is called, uh, this is a, a line I stole from Lou Welsh. Called, it's called Giving Myself Away. That's from uh, a sermon. He said, how to give yourself away a sermon of gladness, which he delivered at Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco uh, at one point. Then I basically have a thing on the, on a chapter on the teaching of Lou Welch, which, which is also embedded in, in the different people in the beat generation that he introduced me to, you know, um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, those people. And, uh, my wife and I got, well, you know, we, we were with a poetry scene. We were basically with a poetry scene until 1979 when we did our last public reading together. I guess I did a couple, you know, in, in the next 20 years, but you know, that's when, and because we were uh, invited to read at the Savoy Tivoli Cafe with Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti and, and Jack Hirschman and, uh, a bunch of the guys. And so once, once we did that, we said, well, let's put it while we're ahead. You know, if you met Carlos Castaneda, which I did at one point, Lou Welch, a beat generation poet, who was my mentor as a poet, introduced me once to Carlos Castaneda. I have evidence that some of the techniques that he used, um, shamanic techniques that he talked about in his book, book Journey to Islam, might have actually come from Lou Welch. Mm -hmm. Or the other way around. It's hard to say, but there, there is a definite, you know, you know, similarity there. During that period, I was beginning to uh, to get involved with, uh, on the edge of things, with uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhist 
Vajrayana teacher Chogyam Trungpa, and, and Ginsburg was drawing a lot of the hippies and the poets from, you know, it's like people from, from his generation and from a generation younger who was me uh, in the direction of Trungpa. You know, William Burroughs ended up following Trungpa, and so, you know, so I almost got there, and then I said, no, no. Uh, this story is told in a book by Tom Clark called The Great Naropa Poetry Wars, uh, which have to do with the time that Trungpa sent his Vajra guards to seize the well-known poet and translator W.S. Merwin and strip him and his fiancée and, and, and haul them before him at, at a drunken party because they wanted to be alone. The guru wants you, you got to go to see the guru. And they, they wouldn't do it, so they were disciplined. So, so this, of course, created a, a, a big brouhaha in, in the whole world of Buddhist, Buddhism and poetry. You know? So um, the, uh, the poet Ed Sanders, who was a member of the New York band The Thugs, mm -hmm. if you can remember that. I do. Uh, he, he, he was there, and, 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 and he, he started to, you know, to do an investigation into what happened. So Trumpa said, well, that's wonderful. Uh, why don't you, you can do a class at my place, which is Naropa Institute at this point, Naropa University, and uh, in a class in investigative poetics, and, you can, and we will we'll give you a space, and you can investigate us. You know, total, perfect co-optation. Just, sure, investigate us. We'll, 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 uh, we'll provide you what you need. Let's go back to when you were in high school. You yes. were writing poetry at the time, right before you met Lou Welch, who became something of a mentor to you. Yeah. What was your life like? You're a teenager in high school, in a Catholic high school in, in Marin County, where I also lived. In, uh, so we have that in common. We both spent yeah. many years in San Rafael. Well, I was just, you know, I was a I lived with my parents. I wasn't trying to, I didn't have a license yet, you know. Um, I forget exactly when I got it. It was earlier than some people do nowadays. But yeah, and starting to wake up from basically not knowing who the hell I was or what was going on. And, but suddenly, you know, poetry started to happen. And, you know, I, I didn't, it just, it just started to happen. Some of it was, some of the stuff I wrote in high school was pretty good, you know, but most of it was incomplete, obviously, juvenilia and all of that. But um, my, my, my relationship, my relationships had to do with these people I knew from school. It's the Trumbley clan. The Trumbleys were were basically, I knew them because their name started with T and my name started with U, so we sat together, you know. And there, there were these, I described them as, as sort of uh, like, you know, uh, a, a Seinfeld menage of quirky character types, I believe I said, something like that. But, you know, uh, that, that was, was Bob, uh, Bill was the oldest, Bob was my age, Two younger brothers, um, Doug and Dan, and then there was this, this Irish neighbor, John Doyle, who was a formidable comedian. You know, I mean, really, you know, uh, very extremely serious about about uh, comedy and, and imposing his power of comedy on everybody. Ooh. But we sort of thought of ourselves as wanting vaguely to be like. Like a, like a literary generation, like the beat generation or something, but we weren't we weren't that serious except for me, you know. And the thing is, I was the guy that believed in God and believed in in, in higher consciousness and believed in, you know, and and I was the space cadet, and they, they were you know like cynical ex-Catholic Irish apostates, as I call them, you know, who who, who had you know humor humor was their stock and trade. They had had a metaphysic of humor, which went to various different levels, and they were just that, you know. Um, basically, you would say they followed James Joyce, whereas I followed, followed W.B. Yeats. That was the difference between us. It was Bill Trumbly who was hung over one morning and said, well, I've been going to this, this 
class at the College of Marine with this guy named Lou Welch, you know, a beat generation poet, apparently. And so uh, I'm too hungover to go, why don't you go in my place? So that's how I met Lou Welch. And, uh, well, talk about a life-changing thing. And, you know, and, and quickly, quickly, Lou, Lou Welch was a serious alcoholic. And like a number of the Beat Generation guys, he was getting his second wind and suddenly a much larger audience during the Hindi counterculture. I mean, both he and Gary Snyder were writing manifestos to be published in the San Francisco Oracle and things like that, you know, underground newspaper. Uh, you know, you know, this is, this is what the, uh, the young should be thinking about, and this is how, how we can navigate these times. And it was really, really attempting to help, not imposing any ideology, but attempting to make sense out of the huge changes that were going down. You know? So, um, so anyway, there, and, and, and a few years later, he committed suicide up at Gary Snyder's place, Kit Kit Dizzy, in, uh, near Nevada City in the Sierra foothills. And, uh, but he, he, he was transmitting, you know, he sort of knew that he was not long for this world. You know, he committed suicide at 43. And this had, this had been, you know, in the back of his mind for most of his life. And, you know, he, he was getting, he tried, tried to, to, you know, kick, kick the bottle. He couldn't do it. And, and he just said to me once, I don't want to end up to be a, a, a stumble bum, you know, wino in the street, you know. So he, you know, he would rather go out at the height of his powers, which, he, which he did. I mean, you know, so very intense. You know, he had some spiritual stuff to transmit to me, and he had some poetic stuff to transmit, you know, and 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 he transmitted them so deeply and it's such. A receptive period of my life, and I've been spending the rest of my life working on them, translating them, refining them. I finally came up with the spiritual exercises of Lou Welch, essays in perceptual Buddhism, which are taken from various of his poems. They're exercises, and I think they they constitute or could be used as a new approach to Zen Buddhism. Now, with Zen Buddhism, you have two things. You, 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 the, 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 you have two schools. There's the Soto school and the Rinzai school. Rinzai school is works with koans. You're given a question that can't be answered in any simple, rational way. It's impossible. So the only way you can answer it is to get beyond the need to make that kind of sense out of things and just respond from your wholeness to it. Whatever you happen to say, that's the right answer. Whereas if you say, Hmm, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Maybe it's like, like this, right? No? Oh, no, that's not it. Um, the other one is, is just, just sit. Soto Zen. If you sit, you're the Buddha. Just sit, be the Buddha. That's that. You know? And of course, there's much more to it than that, but that's, that's the, the basic thing. Both of these things have to do with you. Mm -hmm. To, you know, release release the, the attachment and tendency of your mind to attach to ideas, and you know recognize the Buddha nature within yourself. But both of them leave the world out, and the world is there too. <laughs> the world is part of the whole thing. If all things have the Buddha nature, then so do the rocks and the trees and the cars and everything else. So you've got to include the world. And, you know, perhaps the closest thing to including the world has been something like uh, the Kendall tradition, you know, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the tradition of the samurai when it when it's looked at from a Zen perspective, you know, because you're you're dealing with situations that come at you and you have to deal with them. So, but Lou had it was basically doing things like. What would the world look like if I was already enlightened? If I look at it that way, maybe that'll help me get enlightened. You know? And so very happily, very recently, 
I was finally able to make a gift of, of, of my rendition of his exercises to Peter Coyote, who was a friend, you know, of, of Lou's. And uh, I didn't know him d during the time I knew Lou. I knew him a little later when I was working with homeless because he, uh, we, we were looking for all the celebrities we could get. And so we made a little connection with, uh, with Peter Coyote. So luckily, and oh, Peter Cody by now is a Zen Roshi. He, um, I don't know how long he was practicing Zen, but he finally took orders or whatever you call it in Zen, and now he's an official teacher. So I said, well, here, you know, here's Lou Welsh's teachings. The teachings, for example, like this. When I first met Lou Welch, at the College of Marina, it was, it was a little landscaped garden out, you know, out in the campus. I think buildings have been built there since, but there's space. There, there were uh, a redwood, few redwood trees, a little redwood grove, and a little place to sit. And there was nobody there but me and Lou Welch and Sister Mary Norbert Kurta, who is, uh, was a, she just died recently. She was a Dominican nun of the, of the same nuns who taught me in San Rafael Catholic School. But she was a poet and a very fine poet. And, uh, she was just, she was on the way to leaving the order, leaving the church. Like, uh, the other guy that did that was, uh, Brother Antoninus, William Everson, who was a poet, who was a Dominican, uh, friar, Dominican brother. And, uh, yeah, I met him once too because, because, uh, a colleague of his was brother Christopher, one of my teachers in high school, you know, and so I was getting to be a poet. So he said, well, why don't you, you need, you need to, to, to meet brother Anonymous, you know, so I met him once, you know, it was an interesting connection. Uh, brother Anonymous basically, like a lot of the poets, he, he became a shaman or shaman or figured he was a shaman, you know. I'm not sure about that. I always say, you know, if, if, you're, if you're starting to fail as a poet, you'll always claim to be a shaman. Uh, but I don't know. But, uh, but they, that, that was there, though, because Lou did introduce me to Carlos Castaneda. So anyway, um, and, and, and Sister Mary Norbert just died. I suddenly, I was writing the story of her. I said, wait a minute, i got to talk to her. I haven't talked to her in years. I was following where she was. Uh, someplace in Northern California, she spent many, many, many years of her life trying to save a single stand of first-growth redwoods. Mm -hmm. And she finally did, with some help, I'm sure. And soon after that, she died. Mm -hmm. And I, I was just try, I was trying to get through to her, and, and I, there was somebody you know who apparently was in touch with her. And I left a message and said, "I got to really have to talk to her." Never got back to me. And then, like a couple of months later, she died. Mm -hmm. So I must have felt this was the last chance, but I never got through. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, we were sitting there, and Lou Welch this you know very unexpected kind of person. Uh, he, Lou Welch appears in the movie Big Sur, uh, but but very incorrectly portrayed. You know, in Big Sur, he's he's just this frenetic kind of nervous kind of guy dancing around. Lou was not like that. Lou was, was doing things like never ask why what, always ask what's what. Observe, connect, and do. And that's the way he presented, you know, he, he, he was the most concrete, slow, deliberate, painstakingly simple, as I say, man, you know, this is, and he, he said, you know, you can't, you can't build a poem out of anything but words, just like you can't build a brick wall out of anything but bricks. That was his demeanor. So, he said to us, he wasn't talking about poetry. He said, uh, okay, let's do a perception exercise. Look at those trees over there. Redwood trees. Now imagine that the trunks of the trees are empty, empty spaces, and the spaces between the trees are solid. You just look and you say, huh, can I do that? And suddenly 
the world flips, and oh, oh yeah, okay, and he just did that, okay, and you think, well, that's an interesting thing, but where is that going? Well, where it's going is that's very much like Carlos Castaneda's, some of his exercises in Journey to Islam, uh, in, in, in which you're supposed to stop the world, you know, uh, shifting your perception. Then I realized much, much later that what he was doing was an extremely concrete presentation of the Buddhist doctrine from the Heart Sutra, which says form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Oh, so instead of just having those words that go into your ear and that you think about, well, that's interesting, form, yeah, I could sort of start thinking about it. He said, let's do it. He was that concrete. And concreteness was his main thing. He, he, he was perhaps the most metaphysical of all the beats, but he wasn't an intellectual. I mean, he didn't do it intellectually. He did it existentially, which is so rare. And that's something he didn't do it exactly the way it's done in Zen, but it was the same impulse. You know, and, you know, it's like I remember uh, Houston Smith, who's uh, a friend of mine, my wife, for some years. Uh, he talked about going to study Zen in uh, in Japan. He, he was in the same class with Gary Snyder, you know. And 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 uh, I guess I guess the Zen master gave him a call, you know. And he said, "Well," and he started to talk. Well, that could be. And, and and the Zen master says to him, "You have the philosopher disease," <laughs> you know. And Lou Welch did not want to get the philosopher disease or pass it on to anyone. He was just you know, sidestep that. So he did that. And what's interesting about that is years later, I was meditating with my eyes open in Gristol Park, you know, Gristol Park in San Rafael. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's a redwood grove there as well. So I was med- and 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 what he did happened again. The, the redwood trees became empty spaces, and, and, and the spaces between the redwood trees became birch trees, just as clear as a bell. Clip, and it, it was I was waiting to, to to connect with somebody from this neo Hindu group called Brahma Kumaris, which uh, uh, he had an office at the Albert Building, uh, which is where my father used to have his dental, dental offices. So. And I was waiting there, meditating, waiting for that. And that's what happened. So I said, obviously, he, Lou Welch planted a perceptual seed, which which really got deep, you know. And it's like, if, if, if that can happen to the world, if it can shift like that, well, what is the world? It's not a literal object. And yet, on the other hand, it's not just inside your mind. It's not a fantasy. Because you're seeing that happen, really happen out there. So it's neither, oh, well, like Ronald Reagan said, you've seen red trees tomorrow. It wasn't like that. And that's all I know what that is. I've got a name for it. It's a redwood tree. Sure, sure. No, I don't, I don't, I don't have to, you know, learn anything more about that. I've got that. No, you don't got that. It's always changing. You're, you're not paying attention, you know. And then the other the other thing is, it's, but it's not just a fantasy in your mind. You know, I see redwood trees turning into birch trees in my mind. No, it, it's really out there. So it's a third thing that is neither a literal object nor a simple reverie of your own. It's an apparition. And this is what pretty much the, the Buddhists, I mean, the Tibetan Buddhists are talking about with Things like the rainbow body, you know, they're talking about the the, the the world and yourself as apparitions, not as subjective uh, dreams, and or not as literal objective, you know, realities, objects, but as something else, you know, and 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 so that apparitional quality of the world, you know, if you can shift your perception, you can get there. That is one of the approaches to the enlightened state. So I, I think, and you know, and it was all hidden because, you know, he, he was a terrible alcoholic. He could commit suicide. You tend to say, oh, well, I guess that didn't work out. You know, what could he have to teach? Well, what I, 
I saw with the Beat Generation, these guys were truly desperate. Nothing, you know, that they, they, they knew that, that something greater was real than, than, than 1950s U.S. culture could tell them, or Judeo Christianity, or there was something, there was something more. But how are they going to approach it? They had no idea. It was all on the wing, you know, drugs, travel, sex, booze, something. Now, of course, that can all just be self-indulgence, and largely was, too. But also, you said, make a break with consensus reality, because the consensus reality of the 50s was crazy. I mean, the United States had just won the biggest war in history. We were on top. We were, we, we were the most powerful nation in the world, Russia, I don't know. We were the most powerful nation. We're the richest. Everyone that, that, that a few decades before was living hand to mouth in the depression suddenly could afford a car, two cars and a house. And the wife could stay home and take care of the kids and make a paradise. And, and the husband go out and make enough money. And whoa, we were in. We had made it. On the other hand, there's this thing called nuclear weapons. And now the Russians have got them. And so that, that cognitive dissonance between the greatest success and, and the most terrible threat, you know, caused the people, a lot of the people of the 50s just to freeze up and become extremely weird. And wouldn't you hear what some some of the people talking about nuclear weapons, for example, from old fifties, you know, educational films or something? It's it's crazy. So they knew something was profoundly wrong in, in the American psyche, and they were going to do anything they could to uh, you know because this is, was the point. Consensus reality was so repressive and so imbalanced and so crazy that it was justified, one could argue, for a short time to do almost anything to break out of it. The problem is, once that was broken out of it, then the hippies flowed in and, and they kept breaking it. Now it is so broken. It is so chaotic. It is so crazy in the other way. Kierkegaard has two really important, you know, Søren Kierkegaard, the uh, Danish philosopher, existentialist philosopher, has two very important concepts. One is called despair of necessity, and the other one is called despair of possibility. And this is coming from um, pretty much Aristotle. Aristotle was talking about necessary being and possible being, necessary being is according to Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, identifiable with God, because only God must be. Everything else just might or might not be, and that's possible being. So, but but he 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 did an amazing thing with these concepts, with these categories, where he looked at the alienated aspects of both of them. Despair of necessity is, well, that's the way it's gonna have to be forever. It'll never change. You're stuck. You know, get used to it, suck it up. That's that. That's despair of necessity. Despair of possibility is anything is possible. You know, you could, you could, you could, and, and, and but as, as my friend Bill Trumbly, who introduced me, or, you know, sent me first to Lou Welch, said, he, he, he dropped acid before me. For, if, you know, I hadn't done it yet. I said, what did you learn? What happened? What did you learn from taking LSD? And he said, I learned that everything is possible, but nothing is likely. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what Kierkegaard meant by despair of possibility. You know, possibility, possibility. It's like, uh, it was, that was perfectly satirized in, in the Firesign Theater, uh, comic, you know, LP, uh, everything you know is wrong. Hmm. You know, which, uh, you know, the, 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 the guy was happy Harry Cox, I guess his name is. Could be, could be. You know, and that's, but yes, possible, you know, and, and now, you know, you say, well, it's wonderful. You, 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 you have a thousand channels to choose from. Well, the rest of my life, I don't have time to choose from a thousand channels. So this is very alienated. This is not 
if possibility is going to mean anything, it has to be actualizable at one point. You know, and if necessity is going to mean anything, it can't just be a terribly imposed, deadening oppression that comes perhaps from some vindictive God that this is the way it's going to have to be. It has to be, hey, this is real. This is reliable. This is always going to be real. This is always going to be there. And so you can believe in it and you can even praise it, you know. And God, or this necessary being, will help you realize the possibilities, the ones that are right for you, you know. So that, 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 that's what necessity and possibility are in, 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 in the, you know, unalienated form, but, but they've got alienated forms. Hmm. So what happened is we went into despair of possibility in the worst way till we came to postmodernism, which says that every, any voice, any version of reality has an equal right to speak. Because we don't want to be, you know, uh, um, you know, tyrannical and, and, and imperialistic with, with, with our with our paradigms. Every paradigm has an equal right to speak. Even William Blake said, "Anything possible to be believed is an image of truth." Okay, nice, but um, you can't put them all on the same level. You have to hierarchize. Some things are more important than others. The child, the baby's drowning in, in the swimming pool, and you say, well, I could save the baby, or I could finish my drink. Hmm. They're, they're of equal value. See? You can't do that. You must have a hierarchy of values and a hierarchy, ontological hierarchy of reality. You've got to do that, or you're crazy in the opposite way that, that people were in the 50s. And we got just that crazy. And so finally, you know, it, it, everything is equally true in postmodernism, and what, what did that turn into? It flipped, and it became wokeism, which lays down uh, a, an inquisition. If some words are not to be used, some thoughts are not to be thought, some, you know, some values are not to be called, you know, valuable. This is no longer the old liberalism that says, I, I, I will... Uh, I may not agree with the thing that you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it, which is from Voltaire. Postmodernism had gone too far in the other direction. Whenever you go too far in some direction, the point comes where it flips. And it flipped. It really flipped. So uh, th that's what came of the counterpunch. Let, let's go back, if we can, to your relationship with Lou Welch. You knew he was an alcoholic. Uh, he was we now know, doomed to commit suicide at the height of his powers only a few years after you met him. Yet I gather that you became extremely close to him. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he was tutoring me. He, he, he knew he had teachers. He didn't know who to give them to. And suddenly I popped him. He says, he's the one, I'm going to do it. So he just, everything from, from that, 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 that he had come to, to, to learn that he thought was, you know, useful and, and rather unique. He just imprinted on me for, you know, about a year or something. I would go over to his house with his um, common-law wife, Magda Craig, Huey Lewis's mother, by the way. That's who she was. And uh, she, she died recently. And, uh, you know, he just teach, I mean, uh, he, he, he would teach me, he would, you know, teach me poetry by reading. He would do magnificent readings of Yeats, of Burroughs, you know, and just just get it in my ear. And then he'd say, uh, "Now, now, try reading this. See if you can see. See, if, let me hear you read this." Like he had things called passenger poems because he used to be a cabbie, and he would hear people people would get up drunk in, in, in the back of his cab and start yapping away. And once in a while, he would hear something very interesting. You know, so he said, "Ah, oh, it's a found poem." You know, there's one that goes. I didn't do it very well at the time, but I've been working on it for the past fifty years. I've got better. Which is, uh, he picks up a, a, a nurse, um, sort of middle middle aged nurse who. Uh, you know, is 
undoubtedly in her cups, and that's why she's you know calling a cab and so. And, and she's just talking away. She says, "Oh, no, I I don't I don't like cats. I don't like cats. Kittens are all right, I guess. You can love them when they're little, like people. And then they grow up and take advantage of you. How can you love them anymore?" <laughs> Think of what's, what's he in that, you know. There's a whole life, a whole destiny. And, you know, and think of the compassion that can hear that. You know, this, this you know, woman has, has been probably abused by her kids, you know, and this, right. But you can't can't quite admit it. She has to talk about cats instead. And uh, Lou said at one point, she, she, he says in one of his poems, "I cannot help them. I will not treat them." So, you know, the, 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 there was not the slightest desire to intervene, even on on a, on a very you know, informal, personal level, you know, to be helpful. But it, it was a compassion that went deeper than that. Because, well, that's that. That's the way, that, 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 that's her dilemma. That's her situation. And just expressing it like that. So, so he would teach, teach me, you know, basically how to recite. He would say that, uh, I mean, he, okay, his main teaching with poetry is poetry is speech. And what I understood is the way you, you, you do that in terms of reciting poetry is you have to avoid two extremes. Because he basically said, you know, just, you know, use your, your Native American speech and the way you talk when you really mean something and then use it to recite a poem, you know, with that voice. And so uh, there, there are different, there are different ways. I mean, you can go, you can go into one extreme, like with Dylan Thomas, you know, you know, otherwise by all light in the halfway house, the gentleman lay graver with his furies, a batten and the hangnail cracked from Adam, and a dog among fairies, the Atlas eater with a jaw for news, bit out the mandrake with tomorrow's scream. Then, penny-eyed, that gentleman of wounds, old cock from nowheres, and the heaven's egg, with his bones unbuttoned to the halfway wind, scraped at my cradle in a walking word that night of time under the Christward shelter. I am the long world's gentleman, he said, and share my bed with Capricorn and Cancer. Which is interesting, but what he what he believed in was something more like this, and this is another found poem, which goes like this: Never, never put the goddamn camera in the glove compartment. I told you and told you to never put the goddamn camera in the glove compartment. So what do you do? You put the goddamn camera in the glove compartment, and it's stolen. See? Well, that's the way he. he he believed, and and you can even use something like that to recite a very musical poem, you know, because if the poem gets too musical, it becomes flimsy, you know, whereas, and the other, the other thing, the other problem is just to be clinical and have, have no emotion, you know, and, and, and recite words like a computer or like a robot. And, and what you want is, 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 you know, genuine American speech. So um, that's what he taught. And I, I realized the two masters of that kind of, of poetry, that kind of, um, you know, talking a poem, are John Donne and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> now, John Donne would say, you know, he had this poem, well-known poem, you know, um, go and catch a falling star, get the child and root one. And, and you can do it two different ways. You know, I, I mean, one way, if, if you go too much into the music of the, the rhyme and meter, which comes from Italian, essentially from the sonnet form that came from Italian into English, 
to, you know, go and catch a falling star, get with child and end recruit. Tell me where all past years are and who cleft the devil's foot. But it's better go and catch a falling star, get with child and mandrake root. Tell me where all past years are and who cleft the devil's foot. Teach me to hear mermaids singing and to keep off indies stinging and to find what wind serves to advance an honest mind. Now that's the way to read it, talk it. And that's the way he wrote it, so, so his poems can be talked through and beyond the rhyme and meter. And then, you know, Sinatra did exactly the same thing. He would talk his songs. You know, Perry Como, for example, would croon. But he didn't croon. Uh, I listened the other night to various versions of Sinatra singing one for my baby and one more for the road. And as he got older, when he, when he was young, he was, he was crooning it. But by the time he was like, you know, late 50s or something, he was talking. It was so much better, so much more evocative. You know, so this is what, what Lou taught as a, as a poet. But beyond that, there were perception things. What he taught about words, he said, that, he said this, he said, only poets know that words don't mean anything. Well, what's that? That's a colon, because of course they sort of do, don't they? And, you know, but uh, so he didn't want us to get in involved in the world of words where you're living perceptually and conceptually inside of verbal definitions of things or you look at a rock and you say that's a rock i know what that is it's a rock um it was more when he said those who live in the world those who live in the world of words kill us who seek union with what goes on whether i look at it or not look at it or not so what, what he was seeking was union with what went on, whether he looked at it or not, which means be, something beyond subjectivity. It's really there. And, but how do you unite with, unite with something that um, you're not looking at? You're not, it's not even in your consciousness, and yet somehow you're united with it. You know, you're not paying attention to it. It's not, you're thinking of something else, yet you're not united with it. You know, I mean, he was trying to find what's beyond subject and object. So that, that was one, you know, uh, freedom from the world of words. And he, he, would, uh, he would do that through, for example, through riddles, uh, which, which are an interesting way of playing with language. He has a riddle in his... Uh, uh, po um, poem Wobbly Rock. It's called Wobbly Rock is the name of the poem that he wrote about a rock on the shore at Amir Beach, California. And and I've, I've been there myself. It's a huge, it's a, he says, it's a real rock. I believe this first. Uh, made of, you know, resting on actual sand at the surf's edge of Muir Beach, California. Like everything else I have, somebody else showed it to me, and I found it by myself. I love that. Like everything else I have, somebody else showed it to me, and I found it by myself. Hard, common stone, size of the largest haystack, and moves when hit by waves, actually shudders. Even a good breath of wind will do it if you sit real still and keep your mouth shut. Notched to certain center, it yields, then comes back to it. Wobbly tons. Imagine sitting in this board and goes, good, good chunk, good chunk. And one of the things I did in, in his, you know, thing I wrote on uh, his uh, perception exercises, you know, spiritual exercises, is this teaches impermanence. The Buddhists say everything is impermanent. What's more permanent than a rock? The rock solid, permanent, but the rock itself is going to chunk. So this gets deep into your bones, the sense that all passed. And so anyway, um, in that poem, he has, he has a, uh, a riddle. And it says, De chimig, de chimig, riddle me a riddle. That's Welsh, you know, for riddle me a riddle. De chimig, de chimig, riddle me a riddle. Waves in the sea, if you take away 
to see. Tell me what it is. Well, it took me a long time to solve that one, but I realized that if you if you have waves in the sea and take away the sea, you have waves and without the sea. You know, and so that's that's in the, in the realm of language, waves and which is the same thing as saying waves sand. And then so so what the answer is, waves in the sea, if you take away the sea, tell me what it is. You know, when you're walking on a beach and the tide is going out and, and, and you see these little ripples that are left by the by the tide as it went out, they're sort of dried now and they're like little ridges. And that's what it is. It's the ripples left by the retreating sea and the drying sand. So, look, it's both there in the actual world. It's not, you know, well, waves represent um, energy or, or motion, and, and the sea is, is the enveloping metaphysical matrix. No, no. Waves and the sea. You take away the waves, that there are the waves, but they're not moving. You know, they're very, they're, they're they're in the sand. They're in the drying sand. So, so this is something that that you can perceive in the world, which has profound metaphysical implications. You just don't start from from uh, from the conceptual. You start from the existential, from the physical, and and at the same time, it it, it has to do with with language. You know, you take a toy toy waves and you want to be very literal about it. Waves and the sea take away the sea. Okay, you know. So that's the kind of mind that he felt correctly uh, was almost unique to him. I mean, he 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 saw and learned something I haven't found anywhere else. So that's why I figured that if I turned those into you know Buddhist exercises and sent them to um, Peter Coyote, he would accept them. And he did hear. He said, you know, you're right. And he, he's going to be teaching them to his students. You know? And so uh, I told I, I told him the answer to Lou, Lou Welch's two riddles. Because he, he was, I wasn't supposed to do that. Because Lou had these two riddles. He, he said, um, uh, in every religion, in every place and time, there's been a gesture of bowing, you know, so, forget how it was, so fully that, that the forehead strikes the ground. Why is this? And he says there's only one right answer to this riddle. It's not a koan, because koan can have innumerable right answers, depending upon the state of, of the answer. But this is one right answer. Uh, and the other one was, um, in every religion, every place and time, there's, there's been a gesture of the hands clasped as if in prayer. You know, why is this? And he told me the answer to the first one, and I, I solved the second one by by my by myself. And it, it's basically it isn't it isn't conceptual. It's entirely concrete and physical, and it's nothing to do with religion or metaphysics. But once you solve it, then you see the amazing. Uh, symbolic resonance that, that, that you, you can go to town on metaphysics from it if you want to, you know. But 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 you can't you can't start with the conceptual. The conceptual is the echo. It's it's it's, it's not, you know. What you have to do is you, you you drop the rock first in the pool. The rock is very concrete block. Then the waves of of, of conceptual understanding spread. But you got to drop the rock first, and that's that's. Uh, so anyway, those two riddles, I told both of them to Peter Peter Coyote because uh, he was going to teach him, so he had to know. Hmm. So, but I haven't told him to anybody else, nor will I. So, and this, the answer to the second riddle was uh, confirmed by Magda after he passed on, because uh, she solved it when I think she was in. She was in Latin America and South America at the time, seeking out the shaman that William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg had gone to to find Yahweh or Ayahuasca. And this was before Ayahuasca was very big in the counterculture. 
And she was going around the world finding new drugs. Now she, so she was down there, you know, and, and she actually brought ayahuasca, one of the first to bring ayahuasca back to the, to the United States, which I can say now because she's no longer with us. And, um, so, so which, which is why when, when Huey Lewis came out, out with his song, I need a new drug. We all said, you know, you know, if, if the stuff that Magda brought back from around the world, evil gain from Africa and all this stuff, you know, if that doesn't do it for him, nothing will. You know? So, uh, so that's the kind of stuff he taught, both verbally and in terms of basically in terms of what Zen is trying to do, but a different, a different approach. That, that that poem by Gary Snyder, I know, was from a dream. Mm-hmm. You know, Ruel Ruel just turned up one day alive as you and me. Damn, well, you didn't die after all. I said, you know, yes, I did. He said, mm-hmm. even then, I could feel, you know, because Snyder is one of the greatest dream poets. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's got he's got just some you know some of his best poems are straight out of dream. So. Did Lou Welch consider himself a Zen practitioner of any kind? Well, those guys sort of all did. Like, like the hippies considered themselves yogis, or you know, it, it, it was um, the people who got serious about. Well, uh, Gary Snyder was more serious, and so and Philip Whalen. They, those were the three guys that knew each other at Reed College. Poet, poet Philip Whalen, Gary Snyder, and Lou Welch. So Gary Snyder, uh, who I guess is still alive up there in the Sierra, 92 or 3, and, um, you know, basically he, he, as I understand, has been running a very informal Zendo up there. As But uh, Philip Whalen actually was ordained as a, a Zen priest and uh, worked out of the uh, San, Francisco, San Francisco Zen Center for a while. So... But um, other, you know, Lou was more like Kerouac. Kerouac never joined anything, but he wrote some amazing um, Buddhist scripture. You know, the the scripture of the golden eternity is is worthy of of being considered a Buddhist sutra. And it's truly, it's not, it's not just, he was very serious about that. and so, you know, Lou, Lou was trying, Lou was trying everything because he was trying to kick, kick, you know, the drinking habit. And I mean, I get the idea. There are probably people who know know this better than I do, you know. But I, I get the idea. He did. He did psychotherapy. He did Gurdjieff work. He did. I think he even went to Scientology once to see if he could get, get clear. And um, but. You know, to 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 see if he could save his life, but generally, and you know, I know like like Alan Watts, you you could include in in, in this in this characterization. Generally, that uh, gener- generation, if they had a default religion, it was Zen Buddhism. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them were more serious than others. Well, Alan Watts, I think, was also, if not an alcoholic himself, a very heavy drinker. And the use and abuse of drugs was also part and parcel of the beat movement. Well, yeah. I mean, Ginsburg tried all sorts of drugs before anybody else. He wrote some great poems. I mean, he, he had a poem, Lysergic Acid. I don't know if that was LSD or, or some other version of LSD. He had a poem... Ether, which, um, you know, ether is a, these are, these are drugs, uh, which were talked about by William James in Varieties of the Religious Experience. And so, Ginsburg's poem, Ether, is an amazing tour de force. I mean, I've never, you you just want to see the mind going through all, I mean, it's, it's so lucid and so amazing, you know. And then he has got got a great poem, from LSD, Wales Visitation, lovely poem. But he, you know, he he was, you know, take take different drugs and see what they do and write. You know, Timothy Leary was doing it under more controlled conditions, although I don't know how controlled they really were. But you know, the idea was you, you need the set and the setting, and you and you know, 
slightly more laboratory conditions, if you will. Whereas Kesey just says, put it in the punch, everybody take it to the party, wham, you know. But I think there was an idea that if you spread these drugs out to everybody, you could break down the old paradigms of church, family, political identification with this. And then the population becomes, you know, a plastic substance, formless plastic substance that the uh, social engineers can mold into what form they wish. I'm, some people, at least, were thinking it. This is a form that goes back to the Fabian socialists. The Fabian socialists were gradualist revolutionaries. They, they would basically say, okay, you know, you, you inflame the proletariat, you get them going, they overthrow the czar, you know, they set up a, a, a you know, a Soviet state and do this and do this. But, but then there's all, all this reaction. And, you know, and it's, and it's, it, it hasn't really penetrated. It's been imposed upon people. So they haven't accepted it themselves. It's been imposed on them, you know? Uh, so, so it's unstable and it can fall apart. And it did, of course. It did. So the, the Fabian socialist idea was take generations to generation. They, they, they can sit there and say, this generation will do this. The generation after that will have this rule. A generation after that. It's hard for us to imagine that people could be so serious about consciously transforming society without society's knowledge. But I believe that that's such is the case. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the use of psychedelics was one big step. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, Charles. Uh, let me ask you this question. To get back to the beat generation, now we can look back at it with the perspective of decades. What, what do you think was the impact of uh, that group of writers, Lou Welch and Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg and the others? Basically, Ginsberg, Kerouac, and Burroughs were the ones who had the most impact. And it, it was vast. I mean, it, it, it gave a template for the hippies to to connect with and do their own thing, which was so much more extensive and, you know, larger numbers of the beats. And, well, it, it's not the same nation as it was in 1958. It, everything changed. Everything changed. And, you know, some for the better, a lot for the worse. Um, hmm. You know, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, oh, if only something hadn't happened, because it was going to happen. You know, we're getting to the end of this cycle of manifestation on Earth. That's pretty clear. Look, any direction you, you want to look in, you see something coming to an end. And I'm not saying that no humans will survive on Earth. I'm saying. All the structures that, that, that have been made, not just Western civilization, but every civilization worth the name for thousands and thousands of years are ending right now. And this was one of the phases of them. And so, you know, do you say, well, it was terrible because it broke down the society we need, you know, because human beings can't live without a viable society, even if it has problems, even if it is narrow-minded in some ways. You know, is, is, is chaos, total chaos, really better? You, you, you don't have to say that. You can also say, given that it was going to break down anyway, these doors were opened to the possibility of seeing something beyond the cycles of time. So you could let the apocalypse do its thing. And part of you is, is already beyond it. Part of you is, is, you know, in touch with, with higher consciousness and with higher realities. So some bit of, bit of the human substance can survive, you know, the end of things, you know, and, and, and possibly reseed the world into the human world because 
you know, I wouldn't have done my, my Sufism and all the people who got involved in mystical spiritualities and, and all, all of the develop, developments in psychology and whatever you talk about and, 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 and parapsychology. You know, the, 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 this wouldn't have happened without the counterculture. It would have been small groups that, that, that would not have had much of, a, of, of an effect on society. But, you know, now what's learned in those groups for good or bad, for good or ill, has had a massive effect on society. And so, you know, let, let, let those, you know, who, who can catch the higher, the higher transmission that did come through all of that, you know, more power to them and, and let them go all the way with it. And because there's nothing else that's going to fit us to face what we have to face on this earth, then, you know, consciousness of higher worlds which which you know it was only little little it was a little mystic here and there it was a, it was a meister eckhart or or somebody else you know and but but there's nothing to lose somewhere it was said look there's nothing to lose let every open all the doors for everybody e e even if 80 percent of what comes through them is demons open because it's, it's going to be open anyway so we've got to We've got to be a little ahead of the game and get ready, you know, to, to, to deal with the vast changes that are coming. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I say, I can criticize it. I can say this, this is the evil that came out of the counterculture. But I don't say, you know, it, it never should have happened because, you know, like the Catholics say, like the Muslims say, it's, it's all God's will. You know, and, and, and he's, he, he's, you know what? What the, what the Quran says beautifully, succinctly. It says, "There is no refuge from God but in Him." Because if if you're in if you're on the periphery of things, in, in, in you know, involved in circumstances and, and, and you know, and you know the, the 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 changing scenes of history, which are changing at the speed of light now, you know, you're you're, you're going to be beaten to a pulp, you know, and 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 that's the judgment of God. Whereas if you get into the center from where it's all coming from, and you, and, and you get to what T.S. Eliot called the still point of the turning world, which is, you know, the symbol, the symbol of that or the, or the physical manifestation of that is the pole star, you know, in the sky around which all the stars turn. If you can get there, then all is mercy and all is salvation. But it's the same energy, depends on how, you know, and it's very hard to go closer to the thing that's causing all this pain when you're, when you're out, out on the periphery. It hurts so much out there. You want to go closer to where it's coming from? Yeah, that's the idea. It's the only thing you can do. And you go closer and you finally get to a place where it transforms from, from judgment and, and suffering in, into mercy and healing and, and, and light. And, uh, I mean, there's nothing like, LSD to future that lesson, you know. And I, I hate to quote Jim Morrison at a time like this because he was a pretty sinister guy in many ways. But he said, you know, try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. So if 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 we learn anything from LSD, it was, you know, go toward Go toward the source, the source of the pain. Go right toward it, and there will be a moment where you get through. You know, so that wasn't enough. You got to learn how to go toward it. Besides just taking a pill, but you know, so it wasn't it wasn't all evil. <laughs> well, Charles Upton, what a magnificent discourse! <laughs> Thank you. Oh. Well, talk I can do. And, and you do it brilliantly. I'm looking forward to your autobiography being in, in print, and I'll do everything I can to help promote it. Well, great. And I, I, I'm just wondering if anybody in your audience knows, I know a press that'll publish that. Because, you know, I, somebody just told, told me the name of the press. Uh, the guy said, yeah, you'll do it. There's a couple that said yes. But, you know, uh, I, I would like, I, I don't know if, if there's really space for a, a larger press to do something like this, but there might be. There so might. if anybody has any ideas, you know, you know, contact Jeffrey and he will contact me. I'll, I'll do that. 
Well, once again, thank you for being with me and I look forward to future conversations with you. I don't think we've begun to cover the, well, we have, we have just begun to cover all the ground uh, in the, your magnificent autobiography. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I will hope there's, there's a few, few more chapters to come, which I'm not going to put in this edition. Once again, thank you, Charles. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.